0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. With recent extreme climate events, nature has forced attention to be paid to the global climate crisis. Dr. Beverly Wright has been a leading voice on the urgency of the issue for decades, spreading awareness, working on solutions, and educating the next generations. Dr. Wright is the heart of the environmental justice movement. As Executive Director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, an organization she founded 30 years ago. She's a member of the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, known as WEJAC, has testified before Congress, and is the go-to expert on environmental issues affecting black communities. The spotlight is on as the Biden administration announced that about $6 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act and bipartisan infrastructure law is being rolled out to help communities across the country combat the impacts of climate change. And the most recent federal climate report found that the U.S. has not been decarbonizing fast enough to meet its own climate goals or international ambitions. At the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP28 in Dubai through December 12th, Dr. Wright is sharing her organization's work and amplifying the voices of those most impacted communities of color, and indigenous people, especially those in the global south. Welcome to Equal Time, Dr. Wright.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be
0: here. So tell me, what message are you taking to the United Nations Climate Change Conference, known as COP28 in Dubai?
1: Well, I guess the message that I'm taking to Dubai this year is that although we did not get permission to host our climate justice pavilion in Dubai. They never said no, but they didn't say yes. Um, and the delays of course certainly meant that we would not be able to have time to raise money to do so. We are still attending to raise the voices of the global north together with the global south on all the issues that exist around climate change, environmental justice, and what we call uh, solutions that are not equitable that are being pushed forward are false solutions. So we really want to make, make it clear that a lot of the um, remedies for climate change that are being offered just exacerbate environmental racism and climate impacts in our communities and also for the global south. Tell me
0: a little bit more about that message that you will be taking, amplifying the voices of communities of color, of indigenous populations, those that have not always been taken into consideration, but they're most affected by the crisis and the challenges that you have had.
1: Yes, well, we've been fighting to build the capacity of community-based organizations or EJ communities for the last 30 years. So that they would have a voice in decision making around all er in all areas related to their environmental health. Uh, The climate crisis is something that um, I guess EJ communities saw before anyone else because they're actually living it. They live right next to petrochemical facilities being poisoned. Their health impacted. Their property values gone. The economy of the area is completely lost, and then made the connection between the production of fossil fuels and the increase in uh, carbon causing the warming of the planet. So a lot of people say, um, well, you know, EJ communities or poor people don't really understand what's happening to them. They do understand what's happening. Their question is trying to figure out why and how they can make a difference, so we, for the, after working with EJ communities across the United States- Excuse me and, for a
0: second. What does EJ stand for? EJ communities?
1: Oh, environmental justice communities. Okay,
0: That's great. Thanks. Yeah. That we
1: take for, for granted that everyone knows, but after <laughs> working with environmental justice communities over the last nearly 40 years, helping to define what an environmental justice community is- and developing methods for training communities to have voice and to impact decision making. We now are trying to make the connection between environmental justice communities in the United States and connect them with the global south, the continent in particular. And we, I think we were very successful in doing that um, in Egypt last year because we pulled together the first ever climate justice pavilion in the blue zone as opposed to the green zone. The green zone at the climate conference is where nonprofit organizations sort of talk to themselves. The blue zone is where all the state departments are, where the US, China, Japan, Brazil, all of the representatives of the countries from around the world are. And we were able to have our climate justice pavilion in that setting which meant we were actually talking to people representing countries about decisions that were being made and trying to influence them making decisions that, that would support, you know, um, the needs of most impacted communities. So at that meeting, we were able to connect across the world, really, with people of color from, from the continent, in particular from the Caribbean, from Brazil. The continent United, meaning Africa? Meeting Africa, yes, but making making that connect at that meeting with people who represent people on the ground, but also working through the government, their own government, was a, an accomplishment that we've been trying to 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 make for many years. Having conversations so that we come together on what what message we want to take. Want want uh, EJ communities. Um, to take back home to their own representatives, but also to have that cross-sourcing of information between uh, people of color around the world and the U.S. Uh, You probably already know this, but there are lots of people around the world, and I remember China in particular, really believing that all people in the United States are wealthy, that, you know, Black people are not treated differently. There's no such thing as a poor Black community in the U.S. They know nothing about it. And so when they talked to us, they were talking to us as if we were running things in the United States and had, had um, some control of what was happening. A big surprise to them that, you know, many of our communities were really suffering from environmental pollution. So, but just making those connects so that we can have ongoing dialogues uh, throughout the year and developing sort of a coalition of all of us was probably made possible by that first climate justice pavilion that we did last year in Egypt. We're unable to do that this year for a lot of reasons. We think mostly political, but we intend to be at the one next year at a conference that's not as much tied to a nation that is a producer of oil. So it's even more important that we attend at least a few of us, to continue the conversation with people that we began talking to so they don't give up hope and figure, you know, it was a one-time thing. This will never happen again. This will be a continuous dialogue between the global South and the global, and and the North, global North.
0: Well, I'm sure you will be able to educate them no matter (laughs) from what venue, because you have been at the heart of the environmental justice movement Uh, Through the organization you founded some 30 years ago, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. Could you talk a little bit about your inspiration for that work? I know that you grew up in New Orleans, so you were a firsthand witness to the polluting effects of Cancer Alley, that stretch of land between Baton Rouge and New Orleans that's home to more than 150 petrochemical plants and refineries, and we know who that affects.
1: Yes. So I wish I could tell you that it was my childhood experiences in Cancer Alley that that actually um, motivated me to start the center, but it was not. So like a lot of people, when you live in something, you don't recognize what it is. So living in New Orleans and with families up and down the river, uh, most in Baton Rouge, um, we didn't think negatively of the plants at that time. So for us, that that industrial corridor meant jobs. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we were told, even though we found out very few Black people were actually getting the jobs there. And because I had family in Baton Rouge, I remember clearly on our trips from New Orleans to Baton Rouge on Sunday to, to visit with a lot of aunties that I had in Baton Rouge, as we would be driving along in the car, we would Every time we reach some point on the trip, on the road where this, these horrible smells, you know, would just appear. And as children, my sister and brother and I, we would all start cutting up, as mama would say, because we'd say, oh, you did it, you did it, you know, uh-huh. as if someone had, you know, passed gas, as we would say back then. And my dad's response was, now I look at it very telling, because he would say, hmm, smells like money. So if you grow up, you know, with this concept of these industries really bringing prosperity to communities, you never think about it. The insight for this actually came many years later when I was, first of all, working on working on my doctorate in Buffalo, New York and introduced to Love Canal. That was the first industrial poisoning case that was um, that that took place um, for me. And I think it was the first ever recorded on industrial poisoning of a particular community. So what even, and while I was working on that particular project, I still never made the connection to home. I was like, Oh my God, this is really awful. This is awful. And I also didn't make the connect until years later that the black housing project was right across the street, but no attention was given to them. So, after dealing with Love Canal and and going back as a professor in sociology at the University of New Orleans, my professor from Buffalo, New York, Dr. Addie Levine, who's who since who is now deceased, would come up and I, I come to New Orleans, and she would always always do a lecture on Love Canal for my classes. And so then getting back home and then meeting uh, Bob Bullard who's a, a longtime friend of mine. We were young um, collegiates at the time um, that we first met, You know, working to try to get tenure and writing, trying to publish, meeting at um, one of the conferences. I think it was a Southern Sociological Association or Mid-South or something like that. And he had started working on writing a book and he wanted Louisiana in it. That book ended up being uh, Dumping in Dixie. So my my introduction to this coming all the way home for me was kind of through what he was looking at for writing that particular book. And so then it was like my eyes just flew open and I'm like, oh my God, I'm fighting in Niagara Falls where we have a much larger love canal in that 85 mile stretch along the Mississippi River. And then we were also dealing with extreme environmental racism or racism, as we would call it then. The term environmental racism did not exist. So I would say that the one moment that really motivated me to really start this center and to do this work, make this my life, life's work, was that first um, trip up Cancer Alley along River Road, the River Road. To visit all of these communities, because all of a sudden I was being asked to testify at hearings about, you know, environmental justice, what it was, because Bullen and I started writing about what we were seeing in its infancy, and when I was asked to do uh, to testify at a civil rights hearing in Louisiana, where communities were saying that they were sick and they were dying, and they they felt that it was from the chemical plants around them, but they didn't know there was nothing to show the connection. That was when I became motivated mm-hmm. because of what I saw.
0: That's so but interesting it, that you had to go far uh, from yeah. your home to see what's, what was in your own backyard.
1: Because that's conditioning. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? We, we know what we know, and we know it based upon the perceptions that others have of where you live. And oh, if you definitely. don't come out of there, you you don't you just don't recognize it. But the communities who were living fence line with these communities were recognizing that they were sick and that the, the collard greens that they planted downwind were dying overnight. Their screens were, were uh, rusting and falling off like every three months. They'd wake up with nosebleeds and throwing up and strange mist, you know, like a fog flowing through their homes and they were sick. Uh, I mean, um, rare cancers. Um, And in one community actually put little white crosses on their lawns, I think it was in St. Gabriel, to show every person in their family who had died from cancer or some strange Ah. disease that they thought was connected to the plants, but they couldn't prove it. Ah, So I was motivated then to start the center and to make certain that the center included three components, research and policy studies, community education and training, and dealing with the actual training of, of pe- young people in elementary, secondary, and at the university level on what environmental racism is, and, and hoping to recruit more young people to, to continue this work or to join us in the fight. So that's where it started. And believe it or not, that drive, uh, that led me to producing the first GIS map of the Mississippi River Chemical Corridor by race, income, and spatial distance from um, um, polluting facilities. That was the first ever done.
0: Um, i have because- to ask you
1: what GIS means. <laughs> <laughs> Geographic Information Systems. So I, I explain to students sometimes like this. is something the Army or the military invented. It was an unbelievable tool that was at its infancy when we first started using it. And it actually came out of that civil rights hearing because at that civil rights hearing, I reported what I saw with my students. We did participant observation, riding up and down the river, seeing black communities fence line while there were big spaces on one side of just um, slabs where houses used to be. And in questioning one of the... um, the community leaders there and elder, I just asked him, I said, so what's that over there across the street? And he said, oh, that's where white people used to live. But, you know, uh, the boss came by and said that he was going to come back and move all of us, but he never showed up. That was eight he years ago. He never showed up. Well, it's never interesting because
0: up. so much of your work, uh, because folks didn't really have input into things that were affecting their lives. And so you a lot of it was getting people involved in being yes. in control of things that were done. Could you talk about your, uh, I know you have a, a communiversity model. Community, getting, yes, yeah. Yes. Getting people involved in that research that you were doing and in those decisions that are being made about them.
1: Yeah. So, um, the communiversity model is basically what the center embraced, um, for helping to solve problems or come up with community driven solutions for problems. Um, it's a really a simple thing, but most researchers don't see it because I started out as a college professor and researcher. But um, I remember several years of just going to the library in my little cubby, you know, coming up with a hypothesis and writing reports or writing grants, and I never got any. And so I decided to start meeting with the community. And I asked a simple question. I said, so what do you think is the problem? What is the problem? And they told me what their problems were. And I said, so how do you think we should resolve it? And they gave me the answer of what they thought should be done. And I went back and wrote that into a grant, a request for, for, for money. And that first year, just from actually talking to people on the ground, I got 16 proposals funded as opposed to zero proposals when I was doing it on my own. So if that's not a lesson for you, I don't know what what it could be. How can we work with communities in a way that's respectful? We were doing citizen science before it was called citizen science. So we were groundbreaking in the work that we did, but the communiversity model, first of all, it's a concept, a theoretical concept of how you should work, researchers should work with communities. Then there's a practical side of it. How do you implement this theoretical concept in such a way that communities, um, their their particular ideas and and problems are resolved in the way that they want them resolved? Not the way that a researcher comes in and makes a decision. Well, this is how I'm going to solve this problem for you. And it's difficult. And a lot of people don't like to do it because the upfront work is education. The upfront work is going into a community and saying your, your um, screens are rusting and falling off the window because you, know, th- you are situated this particular distance from several plants who produce these chemicals. These chemicals are associated with these types of diseases, uh, increased mortality and morbidity rates. And when you go into a community giving them something, what comes out of that is work like you've never seen and create oh, yeah. advocates that start movements. So this is movement building. I,
0: movement building,
1: yeah. It's movement building. When you empower communities you know, with information that gives them voice and shows them how to organize to actually um, confront decision makers, mm-hmm. armed with data to support what they're saying, you're creating warriors in those communities because when they know, especially the women, they do not give up.
0: Yeah. Is this a part of your hazardous waste worker training program where it's very work-based, yes. very holistic, well, the, hazardous the where all
1: of Everything that I do is connected. If the hazardous waste worker training program actually evolved out of a need that was identified among community members. So, when I and I'll never forget this, You know, one of my favorite community elders said to me, uh, after we finished working on a process to beat a permit for increased pollution or fight back a facility, I don't remember what it was, but she, she was really short and she put her head on my shoulder, just leaned over and she said, Dr. Wright, I really love you. She said, and I just appreciate so much you helping us fight this pollution. She said, but our children need jobs. She said, we need something way to combat poverty, and that's jobs. And so that just really stuck with me. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, I get a call from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, who is absolutely trying to implement a training program that would allow uh, minorities to get into a field that they had not been included in. Not at all. We were not there at all. It was through the unions, and it was all white. So you know that was a double-edged sword. Now, because they, the one of the reasons they were trying to expand was because the white population was going into other things, hazardous waste. That hard work, you know, was no longer something that that most white people were choosing to do to go into the factory. They were going into law and education, training their children. So they were seeing a huge problem with Superfund sites but a shortage of trained workers. So while for me, it represented education and economic opportunity for people who were suffering and and it would give them the skills to clean up their own backyard in a way that they've looked at other people coming in, making all the money off of huge projects with nothing in it for them. So timing was everything, if you know what I mean. So we applied for that grant that then allowed us to train our own young people to go into this field of the hazardous waste worker field now and when we did that we certainly had not made the connection with climate change you know which is destroying communities everywhere and what you need on the ground are hazardous waste workers to clean up mold you know to know how to deal with asbestos to know how to deal with lead and so The the the, that industry exploded with work, not just from Superfund sites, but now to clean up after uh, uh, extreme uh, climate events like hurricanes and tornadoes, and you know, you. And we've seen those increasing
0: uh, more and more uh, with climate and climate change, and these extreme weather events have really upended things and, and exacerbated the problem.
1: But we also train them to be owners of these companies. We have examples of our young people who've gone and become, you know, um, supervisor level in these things, but also to own their own company. And there's spinoffs like, um, landscaping companies, because we teach them how to deal with the soil. You
0: have a curriculum for schools as well. So they're learning about yes. it really how, what age are, that uh, this curriculum start?
1: So our, our first curriculum was really elementary school only. We have since now advanced it to junior high and high school. But you know, we have our HBCU Climate Change Consortium with, at the college level where we're working directly with college students, with their faculty mentors around climate. And it's amazing to, when, they, when they do their research with their professors for presentation at our conference, it is amazing how in every field, from art to the hard sciences, our young people are busy doing work around climate. They're very interested in community resilience and sustainability, looking at you know, um, heat, heat strokes and heat waves and how that affects in inner cities because of all the pavement. How many trees should we be building to cool the areas where we live? They're doing amazing work. Can you talk about your work
0: with the Biden administration and the goals of what you're doing? I know there's a Justice 40 program.
1: I was very surprised when, you know, working to some extent on the tra- transition team for the Biden administration that our recommendations were heeded, not just that they put money into it and they started the 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 WEJAC, which is the advisory council that's supposed to oversee the implementation of what he calls J-40. So J-40 is really, uh, Justice 40, is really a program that the Biden administration put in place to make sure that at least 40% of all the benefits from renewable energy projects would go to communities that are most impacted, that's EJ and climate impacted. Now, how do you do that? Every agency in the federal government, had to come up with a plan to implement Justice 40, making making certain that 40% of whatever they did around uh, climate resilience would be going to our communities. So that's from, from uh, NASA, believe it or not, I was trying to figure out what in the world they were going to do, but they <laughs> called me. So they are trying from NASA to the things you expect like EPA, HUD, DOE, Housing, Department of Transportation, where the majority of the money went. He gave us the ability to develop What I define as a a grassroots infrastructure for being able to access these fundings. And so we actually meet communities where they are. I say it's building that infrastructure that's needed that will outlive this administration.
0: Yeah. So once the foundations are there, then they can continue to do it. Uh, No matter what administration's there, they they know what to do. That is
1: building that infrastructure that is sorely needed for our communities.
0: What is giving you reason for hope now, knowing that so much still has to be done?
1: Well, um, (laughs) the the reason for hope for me is that at least under the Biden administration, they finally get it, but they're still working. within a hostile environment, that being the political structure with the Republicans working against everything that we do. So while on the one hand, we've seen uh, an enormous amount of uh, progress in terms of funding and direction, the Republicans are fighting us at every angle to, to remove what we have. And also in the funding, it's like we get money to move forward, but then they get money to push false solutions on it. So while we're working to protect communities within that same funding, we have huge grants for carbon capture sequestration, which will, instead of cleaning up our communities, which is the money we're getting from the Biden administration to do, it will add more danger and exposure to pollutants to our communities. How so? Well, carbon capture sequestration is what we call a false solution. It is a process that they that they are experimenting with that is supposed to capture carbon in the air, put it through a process where it is buried forever and does not come back out to harm us. The the problem is that this is very uh new technology to some extent, it's an experiment. So it's moving from the design stage to the experiment stage. And that experiment stage is, it will be housed in the same places where the petrochemical facilities are. So you have the same people then suffering any of the complications of that process. So on the one hand, our communities are being asked to become a part of an experiment that they did not choose.
0: So you're seeing echoes of the past and that black communities are asked to be guinea pigs.
1: Again, yeah, we're the canary in the, in the mine again, and we're fighting really hard. But the thing, the, thing, the thing that's different, what we believe is that in developing movements, you develop people with voice, and the one thing that can stop this is a large movement with a voice.
0: Well, as you're talking about the global conference, the the UN, I saw that the latest uh, emissions gap report from the United Nations said that the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement, there's some progress, but they're not being met. And we've talked about the problems in communities and then in the global south on the continent and how this is a global, really, crisis. So what kind of progress is happening. And what more needs to be done? That's, I guess, gets back to the message you'll you'll be taking to Dubai.
1: I think that, you know, if I could solve this problem, I'd probably be a millionaire if I <laughs> could give you the answer for this. Human beings are just so complex. And then you have nations fighting against nations. We're now, you know, the, 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 I don't know, this era where we find ourselves now is a very dangerous one. And a lot of people don't understand just how, what a dangerous place we're in right now. Um, And the same is true on the dealing with climate change. I mean, there's so many factors here. One of the factors that drives a lot of the dissension is the fact that the countries that produce the most pollution are not willing to pay for the destruction that's been done in poorer nations. They're suffering the most. Nor are they in, and they're also asking these smaller nations to give up more in terms of um, moving forward with electricity and all of these things. And they don't think it's fair. For example, you have a community that's not even on the grid yet, and you're telling them they can't have electricity. We need to move in another direction. Is that fair? when the problems that we have were created by the united states and other you know wealthy countries because of the use of fossil fuels and you know we we want our um our um, air conditioning and all of this to, to go on but we're asking tiny question countries with nothing to give up as much as we are when they don't have anything you know and these countries want air conditioners as well you know they want refrigerators and that's part of the problem because the the way that our economy is run and industries um, and the influence that they have on every decision that's made in the United States, because we are a capitalistic country, that can thwart the efforts of moving forward. Then you get the fights that go on between Russia and China and India and whatever. It's really very complicated. And my understanding is that at the rate we're going now, we're not going to reach the level reduction in greenhouse gases that we need to keep the climate from being worse than it is now. So, you know, I usually tell people that some of the things we don't do is, is because of economics. We feel that we don't want to hurt commerce. I say, but nothing hurts commerce worse than a hurricane or, uh, uh, I mean, mother nature will shut all of this down. What gives me hope are young people, who want none of it. They realize that they don't know what summer is. They don't know what seasons are. They're recognizing now that if you were born in the eighties, you have no idea what the seasons are. The weather has changed dramatically. So my hope is in young people. And I think that, uh, and in women, because I truly believe that if we had more women, the the perspective, not all women, because you know, we have women who think just like men, but Uh, more of us there tends to to bring reality up front in terms of decisions that we make. Uh, So if I were in charge, there would be at least two days around the world where nobody did anything, where you just shut down everything. But do you know how crazy that makes industry feel if you have to shut down? Oh, yeah. What that does for the earth if we did that, the amount of reductions. You look during covid I mean, I saw rainbows again in New Orleans. They were showing the, the earth itself was quieter.
0: Dr. Wright, what question have I not asked you that I should have because you have something important that you want to say on the topic? Is there something I
1: didn't bring up? It, it's not maybe a question, but it's a statement that I always like to make. And that is that we are where we are because of racism. The climate change problem is because of racism. That simply being that when you don't see all people the same and you think it's okay to mistreat other people, then you put, you overuse things, you put the poison, not in your yard, but somebody else's yard so you, you. You have the chance to make a decision to make things cleaner and better, but it's cheaper to just put it someplace else. And so where you put that is based on the fact that you think that some people are less, lesser than what you are. And it all goes back to, in this country, racism, but all over the world. If it's bad for us and we don't want it here, where do we send it? We send it to places where we don't care about other people, where we think it's all right for them to be poisoned as long as we are not.
0: Your work is really fighting against that on a yes. on a small scale, a US scale and a global scale. So good luck to you <laughs> and your dude. message. You've got your work Cut out for you. Thank you, Dr. Beverly Wright for coming on Equal Time. I know our listeners have learned quite a bit. I know I have.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: So one listener shared what's keeping her up at night, the state of elder care, something she's dealing with. I was reminded of the words of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, There are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. She valued the importance of caregiving in the health care system. Those who have been affected by her work and dedication, and so many others, memorialized a life well lived. I write about her legacy and more in my recent Roll Call column. Check it out. So, what's keeping you up at night, listeners? And what questions do you have, especially about issues of policy and politics seen through a lens of social justice? Tweet me at mcurtisnc3. And as I said, check out those columns at rollcall.com. I want to thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.